continuing in our four-part series in this Advent season about miraculous, uh, miraculous births. And last week we talked about uh, Samson, and this week we're going to be looking at the miraculous birth of Samuel. Many of you who have visited our home have met our Chihuahua dachshund, our Chihuini, Marco. <laughs> However, you may not know that he has a brother, Nacho. When we moved up here, we did one of the hardest things that a dog owner could do. We adopted him out to a family in Salinas. Because of his breed and uh, the weather that is up here, we felt that he would be better off uh, staying in uh, the California area. And especially with the fact that whenever it was raining in Salinas, which was very rare, it only rained a few times a year it seemed, he would refuse to go outside to go to the bathroom but would instead take his bathroom break on our ficus tree inside. And so we thought, well, the weather up here is probably not very conducive to him. And we also thought he would do much better in a home without his brother Marco, because their behavior as brothers uh, had begun to remind me of the brotherly relationship between Jacob and Esau, not the loving relationship that we had hoped for when we got them as puppies. They constantly fought over food, affection, doggy toys, and to the point where Nacho was beginning to be injured by the more dominant Marco. And so we split them up, and Marco turned into a mellow and sweet dog without his brother to beat up on all the time. But all the benefits of this decision did not make the process any easier for us. When the other family's dad showed up to meet Nacho and decided that he wanted him on the spot, there were tears and doubts about the thing that we were doing. How would Nacho adjust to his new family? Would this family love him like we had over the past four years? Or would he run away and make a cross-country trip all the way up to Monroe to find us? <laughs> well, as hard as it is to give up your pet, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to give up a child. But that's just what our story is about when we look at these miraculous births here and we focus in on Samuel. And just like last week, we're going to ask the same three questions. Number one, what was miraculous about Samuel's arrival? Why did he come? And what lesson can we learn from this story? And so for, first of all, let's look at Samuel's miraculous arrival. As was the case in Samson's mother last week, uh, we meet a woman named Hannah here in 1 Samuel 1, and she is infertile. But unlike Samson's mother, Hannah has another issue that is added to her struggle. Her husband has a second wife who has no trouble getting pregnant at all. In fact, she has provided him with multiple sons and daughters. Her name is Fertile Myrtle. I'm sorry, no, it's actually Penina. <laughs> and Hannah and Penina were not friends at all. They were rivals. They were fighting for the affection of their husband. Penina mocked and irritated Hannah because uh, their husband, Elkinah, loved her more and gave her a double allowance because of her infertility. But Hannah would have traded all that provision, all of that love from her husband, for the ability to conceive. Because remember, last week, we touched on the fact that in that culture, uh, it was very important to be able to conceive, to pass on the family name. And there was much for a woman tied up in that ability. And on top of all of this, we see in verse 5 that it's the Lord who has closed her womb. 
Subsequently, Hannah slipped into a deep depression. She wept constantly. She stopped eating. And as her husband uh, was looking and seeing all of these things, uh, this was right at the time when they were to make the journey down to Shiloh. And he tries to console Hannah. As we observe the conversation, we see that uh, her husband could have probably benefited from reading The Five Love Languages by Jerry, Gary Chapman, or perhaps What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women uh, from James Dobson. Because he has about as much uh, sensitivity as a testosterone-driven stallion when he says, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> And so Penina adds fuel to, the, uh, fuel to the fire by provoking her on the journey, perhaps drawing attention to the fact that it's obvious that the Lord disapproves of her as is evidenced in her barrenness. But it gets worse. They arrive at the house of the Lord in Shiloh there, and Hannah is overwhelmed by grief and depression and the lack of support from her husband and what should have been uh, somebody that she loved, a sister in the Lord has turned against her as well. And so she turns to God in prayer. And as she's crying out to the Lord, his earthly representative, Eli the priest, walks up and accuses her of being drunk because her mouth is moving, but there's no voice coming out. She's uh, praying silently in her head. And she's crying out to the Lord, and he says, when will you put away your wine? Well, thankfully, God heard her prayer. Hannah tells him that if he would grant her a child, that she would dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. And so the next time that she sleeps with her husband, she conceives, and she gives birth to a son, Samuel. But think about this. As Samuel's growing up, she remembers the fact that she's dedicated this child to the Lord. He's not going to be staying with her for very long. And so the time was set for the transfer when the child was to be weaned. Now, it's a little different back then. Weaning was a little bit longer process. And so perhaps he was about five years old at the very latest when he went to live with Eli. And she makes this 14-mile journey from Ramah to Shiloh, this tent of meeting. And this was to be Samuel's new home. Probably took six to seven hours on a donkey, even more on foot, especially considering she had a small child in tow. And so one of the interesting aspects about this adoption that's so crazy is that Eli doesn't even know about it. <laughs> he's not even aware of the fact that this child is going to come and live with him. And he's old. He has two grown sons already. And so we see an elderly man whose eyesight's failing, and he's taking charge over this probably five-year-old boy. And I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for Hannah, especially in light of how Eli's uh, parenting had produced two terrible sons. In fact, in 1 Samuel 2.12, it says they were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. Nevertheless, Hannah trusted that the Lord was going to care for her son. We see this in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, where she says, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. And this is exactly what the Lord did for Samuel. And then we look at this next question now. Why did Samuel come? What was his mission? Well, God's purpose for Samuel became, became very clear early on in his time in the tent of meeting. 
We see it highlighted in 2 Samuel 2.26 where it says, Now the boy Samuel continued, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then in verse uh, 1 from chapter 3, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And so this was during a time when there was a lot of silence from heaven. And so one night Samuel's sleeping and the Lord calls to him, Samuel. But Samuel gets up, he thinks it's Eli, he goes in. No, it's not me, go back to bed. This happens three times and finally Eli says, you know, it's probably the Lord. <laughs> when you hear the voice again say, Lord, speak to your servant. And so God does speak to him again. But what was typical in the Old Testament is the message that Samuel received was not a very favorable one. It was one that he didn't even want to tell Eli because the message was one of judgment against the wickedness that was transpiring in the house of the Lord against the people. Because Eli's sons were abusing them. They were causing the people to have contempt against the house of the Lord. And so God tells Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Notice that, he did not restrain them. And so subsequently the Philistines attack and both Eli's sons are killed in battle and they lose the Ark of the Covenant. And Eli's waiting for word from the battle. He's so fat, he hears the word, he, he kind of gets faint, he falls over and he breaks his neck. And so he dies as well. And so Eli dies and Samuel takes over as the priest in the house of the Lord. And his main role was that, to be a priest. But it was clear that he was also a prophet because he was hearing the word of the Lord. And he was hearing directly from God to speak to the people. Unfortunately, he was not much of a father either and fell into the same sin as Eli. He did not restrain his sons. We see this in 1 Samuel 8, 3 through 5. It said, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramahand and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so in spite of his failing, Samuel did accomplish much as a priest and a prophet. He walked Israel through a very sticky period with an unfit king, Saul, and bringing in a fit king, David. But unlike Eli, he is counted as one of God's faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. And he can teach us many things today. And so that moves us into the final part of this lesson. What things can we learn from Samuel? Well, lesson one, the Lord closes and opens the womb. This first lesson is probably the most difficult for those who are desiring to have children but not, have not had any. Because childbirth is so sacred to the Lord that he commanded Israel in Exodus 13, 12, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. 
And so in Hannah's situation here, God was standing beside her during that barren season. He had not forsaken her. He was not angry with her. In fact, he was preparing her to be used as his vessel. Notice Penina did not dedicate her firstborn to the Lord. She was not concerned in the least about her ability to give birth. She had plenty of kids. She was to the point where she was even taking it for granted and thought that it was evidence of God's favor against her rival. Hannah, on the other hand, was desperately aware of her dependence on the Lord and her need for a child. And this desperation made it easier for her to give her child over because she didn't have any children. She couldn't have children. She knew it was from the Lord and knew that she needed to give this child back to him. This works as an analogy in other areas of our lives as well. Say, for instance, that you're very poor. You grew up with hardly any money. And somehow you prosper and somehow you rise up and you begin to make money. It's easier for us to recognize the Lord's hand in the midst of that. Rather than if you came from wealth and you just take it for granted. And so, what are some of the examples that come to mind for your life? in which you know that it was the Lord. There's no doubt in your mind that the Lord was the one who was instrumental in your current situation. The second lesson we see here is that even children can hear from the Lord. The Bible makes it clear that God loves little children. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 18:3 that unless they became like little children, they would not even see the kingdom of God. Also, it's clear in this passage that children can hear the voice of the Lord. As one pastor stated, kids don't get a mini Holy Spirit and adults a full-sized Holy Spirit. Kids get the full-sized Holy Spirit. We both get the same portion. And Eli, for all his foolishness, was wise in this instance where Samuel's hearing the Lord and he encouraged him, go back and say, your servant is hearing, speak. He didn't tell him to go back and just ignore it, go to sleep, it'll go away. He encouraged Samuel to respond to God's voice. In the morning, he wisely instructed Samuel to not hold anything back, even though the prophecy was against him. He said, tell me everything that the Lord has said. And so you see, just prior to this, another prophet had come and told him the same thing Eli had. And so Samuel was actually just uh, uh, just a... Uh, um, Lost the word. <laughs> reinforcement, sorry, reinforcement. And so Samuel was confirming. And God could have left things just like that. He could have just had the original prophet come. He could have been the one that brought the prophecy. But he wanted to show Samuel and confirm there that he was speaking to him as well. And so this would be crucial for his future ministry, ministry hearing the Lord, understanding him. And as I prepared this message, I became convinced because I know that I have done uh, not an adequate job. I became convicted by the Lord and that I have fallen short in letting my children recognize the voice of the Lord and encouraging them in that. Because this kind of lesson uh, needs to be caught. It can't be taught. You need to show your children about listening for the voice of the Lord. And when your children or grandchildren experience you listening for the Lord, for the God's direction, they come to expect that they should be able to hear from the Lord. 
about God's direction. And so examples of that for us is when we came up here, we didn't just sit down and decide, yeah, we're going to do that. We talked to the whole family. And we said, you know, and there was, there was some <laughs> tears over that, uh, over us coming up here. There was some resistance to that. But when we stopped and we said, okay, let's pray now and let's try to hear the word of the Lord for us, whether we should come up here to Elam. And after that, all the tears stopped, at least at that moment, because suddenly even our children recognized the hand of the Lord that we were supposed to come up here because the Holy Spirit comforted them and helped them to know that this was God's plan that was in front of us. And so at a minimum, when your kids come to you for advice about a problem that they're facing, take a moment to stop and pray. <laughs> pray with them and expect that God's going to speak to them and show them direction. Lesson three, don't let your ministry interfere with your family life. One of the most severe warnings that I received in seminary was from a professor who had been in pastoral ministry, and he said to not sacrifice your family for the pastorate. If the business of Eli's uh, priest during, uh, during this time when he was raising them, uh, if that was like a modern pastor, then he was not doing very well. He wasn't doing well with his sons. He wasn't encouraging. He wasn't restraining them. And by the way, that's something for us as parents, that we need to continue to restrain, be a restraint to our adult children as well. Once they leave the house, it's not just, oh, finally, whew, they're out, you know, they're on their own. God, just take care of them, right? No, you're still a restraining force in their life. You can still speak into their lives and give them advice and direction and all these things. Obviously, you don't have control like you would in this situation with Eli because he, the sons were still working under him. However, we need to still be a voice for our children's life. And they failed. They failed greatly. They were actually taking meat out of, that was supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord. They were taking it and they were eating it. And so they were taking directly from the Lord in this situation. In 1 Samuel 2.17 it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. With contempt. Samuel failed in this way as well. And I would encourage you parents, you have a major, major influence over your children's lives. The most major influence. In fact, many will say, oh, your influence wanes, and then they pick up peers and whatever, and they become the main influence. I would say that in the Lord, no, you are still the main influence for your children's life. Not only presently, but the past things that they have learned. They will continue to remember. I learn things, I still think about things that my mom told me. I still think about things that my grandfather told me, that my grandmother told me. And so those words are very powerful. We talked a little bit in confirmation class, I was talking to Sarah this morning about the power of words for the negative and the positive. You know, how many times have you, you're worthless, you can't do anything right, or don't you know how to do anything? These kinds of words are very wounding and powerful for kids. But on the flip side, the power of positive encouragement in the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about just, hey, great job. I'm talking about in the Lord, how the Lord sees them, what he thinks of them. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 4. An overseer must manage his own household well and keep his children under control with complete dignity. For if someone does not know how to care and manage his own household, 
how can he care for the church of God? Lesson four, the final lesson. Speak God's message. The final lesson here we learn from Samuel's miraculous life is that no matter what the opposition, we must proclaim the word of the Lord. This was Samuel's greatest accomplishment. When God gave him a message, he delivered it. He didn't hold back. He wasn't concerned about what was going to happen to him. He learned this lesson early on when Eli warned him. What was it that he told you, the Lord? Do not hide it from me. May God do to you and more also if you hide anything from me that he has told you. In fact, it's much better to fall into the hands of angry men than an angry God. And in our modern culture, the temptation is to tell people only what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. In 2 Timothy 4.3, it predicts this propensity. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We see this in churches all over the place. Let's find somebody who will tell us all the fun things that we want to hear. And Samuel confronted his elders, priests, and even kings. And for this, he was counted worthy to be included in the hall of faith. In conclusion this morning, in the midst of the Advent season, we're focusing on waiting for the Lord. And it reminded me of something very important. Back when we were planning our move up to Washington and we made the decision to give Nacho up to this other family, it was a real season of waiting for us. We were waiting for Elam to set up interviews for the council, waiting for the council to present their recommendation to the congregation, waiting for the congregation to vote, waiting to see if we would sell our house down there, waiting to see if our offer was accepted up here, waiting to see if the contingencies would be removed. And at one point, the realtor in California called us and said there were major issues with our buyer and the house there. All of her credit scores had suddenly disappeared from the system. And this issue had the potential of messing up not only our closing date down there, but even our home up here. And so we would have to start all over or maybe rent for a while. And as I was absorbing all of that, a letter came from a man in Soledad prison who I'd been ministering to. He said, Pastor Scott, I would appreciate your prayers as I continue to wait on the Lord for my release. <laughs> wow, that really put things into perspective, you know, my freedom my family, I, everything was okay, and I, the stress started to come down a little bit more. And we can get caught up in that, right? We can get caught up in all the things we're waiting, especially as a young person. It always seems like the next thing out there that we're waiting for. But ultimately, we forget that all of this is just temporary. We forget the fact that what we're really waiting for is the appearing of our Lord Jesus. As Hannah was waiting for God to give her a child, she remembered who it was that she was waiting for, not just the child. She was waiting for God to move. She was waiting for the Messiah to come and take away their sin and restore the kingdom. That was Samuel's main job as a prophet. And perhaps you're waiting for something in your life this Advent. I admonish you and encourage you, spend time seeking him in prayer and listening for his voice. If you're waiting for something, and it seems like we all are, I want you to take five, ten minutes this week and set that before the Lord. And if you're part of a family, bring the family together. We have this major decision in front of us. 
Let's pray and actually listen to see if the Lord has an answer for us during this time. That's what Samuel did, and his life was never the same after that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the example of Samuel and Samson as we look at John the Baptist next week and ultimately the life of Jesus. Lord, help us in our season of waiting. As we wait for your return, Lord, help us to be at work proclaiming your word and trusting in you, listening for your voice. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.